When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. If you enjoy listening to Chorology, then I need your help. Here's why. I create Chorology by myself on a shoestring budget, recording and editing every episode in my tiny closet. How's that for irony? That's where you come in. Will you help keep Chorology on the air by supporting it financially? By tipping as little as $1 a month, you can help me improve and keep making Chorology every week. All you have to do is jump over to MatthiasRoberts.com support to make a pledge and listen away. Hey friends, this is Matthias Roberts, and you're listening to Queerology, a podcast on belief and being. This is episode 61. You can take any church or any organization that splits or tries to purge the affirming people, and guess what? Give it enough time, and more LGBTQ people just crop up in that smaller group of people. We will still be there. I don't think that it would be an overstatement to say that the queer faith movement can be divided into pre-Matthew Vines and post-Matthew Vines. His book, God and the Gay Christian, The Biblical Case in Support of Same-Sex Relationships, brought the national conversation around can you be a gay Christian to a fever pitch, uh, causing countless denominations and faith leaders to scramble to try to contend with his arguments that one can, in fact, be gay and Christian, queer and Christian. Um, Today, Matthew is a leading voice uh, around the Bible and homosexuality. His work has been featured by Time Magazine, The New York Times, Political NPR, and many others. And he currently directs his nonprofit organization, The Reformation Project, seeking to reform church teaching on sexual orientation and gender identity. I'm so excited to have Matthew on the podcast today. Uh, He has become a very dear, dear friend of mine over the last few years. Always love sitting down with him. We're talking about the state of the movement today. I I think in this political climate, it it sometimes can be hard to have hope. Uh, And and that's kind of what Matthew and I are talking about. Um, What's happening in the movement? What good things are happening? Where do we need to work? Um, What's going on? Before we dive into that, uh, the Reformation Project, uh, speaking of, <laughs> conference is happening in Orlando, October 18th through 21. We're doing a live episode of Quirology there in Orlando. Uh, so if you're going to be there, make sure to come check that out. Uh, registration is still open and available. If you're maybe thinking about last minute going to Orlando for that conference, it's going to be amazing. Uh, so many good people there. Matthew talks about it a little bit more uh, in this episode as well. Uh, you can grab tickets over at reformationproject.org. And and then again, registration is open for Q Christian Fellowships conference happening in Chicago at the beginning of January. Uh, you can go grab tickets for that over at qchristian.org. Okay, let's go ahead and dive in. 
Matthew, hi, welcome. Hello, Matthias. How are you? I am doing well. How are you? I thought you just said you weren't doing well. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> you need to start over now. This might actually stay in. So, <laughs> I'm just like two minutes ago, you said you weren't doing well, and now you're doing well. Yeah. I mean, it's been a rough week, I think, for everyone. It, it has been a rough week. It's yeah. been echoes of uh, the day after the election. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. So, so with that, <laughs> to jump right in, the, the question I ask everyone, uh, how do you identify, and then how would you say that your faith has helped form that identity? Huh, such a good question. I was thinking about this this morning, and I feel like there are multiple parts to how I would best answer this. First of all, I've never been heavily into identifying myself as, you know, a lot of things that are going to be in your Twitter, Instagram bio around, you know, whatever it may be, world changer and, you know, uh, scented candle lover, um, you know, know, like (laughs) they can list like their 15 15 different identities right there. That's not really been uh, my... I don't know I, how my my a relationship to those types of identities, but not that I think you would have many people who would come on and say scented candle lovers. You know, one of I mean, you about. never know. Like you, you never do. But I mean, I think my identities kind of I've experienced them in three different stages of my life. So my first and foundational identity is being a Christian because that's really the first thing that I knew in terms of big picture questions around worldview, who I am, my purpose and value and being in the world. Because I became a Christian when I was three years old. And I really distinctly remember that experience. It's actually only the second memory that I can recall. Um, But, and I did it in a rather formulaic way based on what they told us in Sunday school of asking Jesus into my heart. But, um, it certainly was very personally significant for me. And then that's always been kind of the key anchoring for me in my life, my Christian faith and that identity, much more on a personal level than on a cultural one. Um, And then I kind of learned all these values growing up around the gospels, the teachings of Jesus, the way that my parents and my church taught and shared their faith with me, which obviously then came into some degree of conflict with the second stage of kind of identity um, recognition or construction, which was realizing that I was gay in college. Um, So, You know, I've talked about that quite a bit, so I don't need to go into great detail on that right now. But certainly knowing that being gay was just a part of me, whether I liked it or not, whether I wanted it to be or not, required me to reckon with how that fit with my most foundational identity of being a Christian. Um, So that then led to many subsequent chapters of my life. But then there's kind of a third stage of identity development or recognition in my life. And that's been the flip side of 
recognizing being gay, which is recognizing an experience of marginalization um, and an experience of, um, you know, not being understood by the majority. And the flip side of that has been understanding in a more systemic way all of the areas and identities, the privileged identities that I have of being white, being male, being cisgender, being able-bodied, being upper middle class, having parents who graduated from graduate school, um, growing up in the United States with all those other identities, um, being a Christian, being able to speak English as my native language. I mean, we, we could go on. Um, and it's not that I wasn't aware of those things when I was growing up, um, but I was not, and I, it's not that I wasn't aware that there were privileges that adhered in many of them because I was, but I still didn't understand the full extent of that. And I'm, well, frankly, I'm sure I still don't understand the full extent of that, mm-hmm. but I feel like I've learned a great deal since coming out about just the, just how significant those identities actually are um, in my life and in other people's lives and in a lot of ways that aren't fair or right. Um, and so that's been pretty formative for me because I also have to reckon with that as it intersects with my core Christian identity. Mm. Um, in the same way that it, it's in a different way than people saying, oh, you cannot be gay and Christian, but recognizing if you actually have all of these unearned advantages that you do not deserve and that you have at the expense of other people, whether you wanted to or not, then if your core identity is a Christian one, that should compel you to some kind of action in response to that rather than just a passive acceptance of it or some kind of shallow theologizing away of the inequity of it. Um, so I think that's kind of, and you can almost trace that journey fairly neatly just throughout what I've done with my life, um, from being, you know, very involved in church growing up and being, I think, pretty well regarded and respected in church growing up. And then obviously, um, working through everything around my sexuality and sexual orientation and my faith, but then, Uh, also really seeking to, and I'm always learning and always growing, but really wanting to and trying to um, ensure that what we're doing through the Reformation Project, the framework for advocacy that I am trying to um, share and pass on to other people is one that is more holistic in its analysis of um, who is being left out um, and who is be- on the basis of like who they are and their identities. Um, so certainly that's all part of, and I credit that in large part to the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize, you know, I mean, this is, it's so typical and makes me think I, you know, shouldn't even be talking about it, but I absolutely <laughs> was I had no doubt that racism existed and existed in a, in a pretty significant way before the Black Lives Matter movement and that institutional racism existed and structural racism existed. And yet I was still shocked um, in 2014 with all of, 
you know, the rise of all of the, the recordings of police officers, um, shooting, killing, murdering, um, you know, there, we can go through a list of many different examples and people can use whatever technical language they want, but completely unjustified, um, killings and just things that I had no, I, I really didn't understand. It's like on a, I, I, it's not that I didn't believe that, that institutional racism existed, but I did not understand. And then we can fast forward to the Me Too movement. And once again, I did not understand just the pervasiveness of sexual assault and sexual harassment. Um, so I've also just feel like I've been learning a lot and um, wanting to, I don't know, recognize what my lane is and how narrow it is in many ways. Um, mm-hmm. But also how, how much privilege I really do have and, um, and what my Christian faith calls me to do with that and to do about that. Um, which is honestly for the last few years, ever since the black lives matter movement, it's mostly just been to be in relationship with other people and to be learning and be open to, you know, seeing things that I hadn't seen before um, and doing something about them when I can. So that's kind of my three part (laughs) um, outline of, I guess, how I think through identity and faith. So like, I mean, you've, you've kind of been at the forefront in a way of uh, for sure the queer justice movement uh, within Christian spaces. Um, and also the Reformation Project, like you, you're talking about this intersectional approach. Like, I, I feel like you truly are an intersectional organization. Um, I would say we strive to be because I am, we are always learning and always hearing from people about areas we need to improve. So I never want to just suggest we have accomplished this. We have achieved this. I know we haven't. I mean, I certainly think that everyone in our organization, all of our staff are very committed to building relationships with our own leaders, our own grassroots leaders and volunteers who are people of color, who are disabled, who are trans or gender non-conforming, so that we can continually be learning from them. That's why I don't want to just say, you know, we are intersectional as though we're doing it as well as you could on all these topics. But I certainly do think that you can fairly say that we really do care and are and try to create space to always be learning how we can do better and then are trying to improve and do better um, as we strive toward an intersectional, really fully inclusive approach. Yeah, that feels like a really important clarification. Like it, it's similar to that that sense of like we uh, <laughs> we can't claim allyship; it has to be given. Um, so, yeah, thank you. As, so, as someone who's in a leadership role in in some of these spaces, and and maybe we can talk specifically around queer Christian kind of justice. How do you think things are going? Like, I feel like when your book came out, when the, when, when your video came out, like we were, we were kind of in this hopeful, optimistic place, like change was happening. There were major, major things happening politically, um, successes. There were evangelical churches that were, you know, coming out as affirming. And, and I feel like here we are a few years later, kind of looking back being like, wait a second, what happened? That energy, at least for me, doesn't feel like it's quite as present. Like, I feel like we're kind of hunkering down um, and having to recollect maybe in a way. I, I'd be curious, like, if you if you share, if you feel that same way or, or how, how are things going from your perspective? 
No, I, I do feel pretty similarly. Um, I think that's true for most all justice movements that we feel we're in more of a defensive posture right now um, and seeking to protect the gains we have made um, that are being attacked rather than feeling like we have as much room to make as many um, fresh gains. Um, And that's just the nature of having an administration in power that is so opposed to the rights and dignity of every marginalized group in this country. Um, So of course that's going to change the, the tenor of things. The other really sad dynamic of it all is the complicity of the great majority of the white evangelical church with um, the inhumane agenda of the Trump administration um, and incredibly unchristian in any sense that we're talking related to the teachings and life of Jesus. And so I think that's certainly been, for those of us doing work in church contexts, especially more conservative church contexts, it's hard not to let that produce a fair amount of cynicism, if not more despondent feeling. At the same time, though, and I mean, I have struggled a lot since the election. That was, I mean, the entire year of 2016 was just horrible in terms of, I mean, I didn't think he was going to win, but there was this incredibly disturbing energy animating his campaign and just the number of people who would show up at his campaign rallies and just be so drawn in by his hatred. It's definitely changed the tenor of our whole society much for the worse. And absolutely that's true in the church as well. Um, So, and, but then with the election itself and with him winning and just the parade of horrors that have followed, including with his most recent nightmare of Brett Kavanaugh and the, just the dismissal of sexual assault, the virtual erasure of um, his victims. It's, it's, yeah. I mean, we don't need to just dwell on all of these horrors, but we certainly know they're out there and, and they do affect us. They, they affect us not just in terms of policy outcomes, but they also affect us on a broader, like, just on a psychological level, on our personal sense of, they affect our relationships with oftentimes like family and friends, with people from church. When 48% of white evangelicals said that they thought Kavanaugh should be confirmed even if he assaulted Christine Blasey Ford. I think if a very, a very understandable response to that is to say, well, how could I, how could I worship in a church where statistically, if it's an average white evangelical church, one out of two people in this church feel that way? It certainly challenges the optimism of those of us who are more optimistically inclined in general, but I have not had yet all of my optimism stuffed out of me yet. I don't know. I I feel like I've had to make some reassessments to my expectations around timelines um, for institutional change. I was, you know, I think what you were referring to is maybe in 2015, 2016, when there were, you know, several high profile churches that 
switched their policies and became affirming. I was not feeling like, oh, you know, we're on the cusp of everyone doing this next year or later this year, because it's, I've also watched as those churches have had to, have had to deal with so many challenges after they make those changes, so much internal resistance um, and opposition. I mean, I certainly have been terribly disappointed with the choices, with, with the choices, the statements or the silence of so many evangelical leaders or individual Christians. But to not d- dwell overly much on the negatives, because I know people don't listen to podcasts to depress themselves. <laughs> the thing that the dynamic that despite all of the, all of these nightmares, the dynamic that still hasn't changed is a specifically on the LGBTQ inclusion conversation. The trend lines have not changed. We have not seen a statistically significant dip in support for same-sex marriage among evangelicals, like younger evangelicals. Like we have the people who are, have been where this change was always happening and going to happen. It's not like it's just turned around and reversed. What's happened is the people who were not with us to begin with, who have the great majority of the institutional power are doubling down, which is, you know, not exactly shocking just in the nature of social change and social justice movements. And that's certainly, I mean, it's, it's, it's a real significant thing, but it doesn't change the fact that there's still a massive generational difference on this topic. It doesn't change the fact that LGBTQ Christians are gaining a voice more than we have ever collectively had before in terms of our ability, how many people know we exist, how many people know a close friend or family member who is an openly LGBTQ person or Christian. And it's also true that if you look at the demographics of our generation, they are shifting in a way that is challenging to power dynamics across the board, especially when it comes to the entrenched power of the white majority. And that's part of the reason I mean, this is not an original insight at all, of course, but that's a huge part of the reason why we see such a backlash from people, because everyone knows this change is gradually coming, but it isn't here yet, really. Not in a way that can be reflected in our institutions. It is here in the lives of many people, but it's not here at that kind of those more systemic levels. Everyone knows the direction that things are shifting in. And so I think there's this huge effort right now to try to stop that change as much as possible. And I think it can be resisted and it can be slowed down. But especially with the LGBTQ conversation, I still don't think it can be stopped. And this is one reason why I'm grateful to be doing this work, even though some days it feels like, wait, now there are 10 new humanitarian crises over what there were yesterday. And, you know, we're still just trying to chip away a little bit at this one that's existed for a long time. So it can kind of feel like when so many fires are raging at one time, well, we're putting a little water on this one. <laughs> you know, I think it can make, make some people feel like, what's what's the point? Uh, I certainly sympathize with that. But one thing that is unique about the LGBTQ movement in general is the way that it works. The fact that we cannot be like we exist everywhere and in every community in every country in every group of people or organization we exist and that has that was a really 
big disadvantage in the early stages of the LGBTQ movement or before it even started because it was so difficult to build power when you didn't even know there was anyone else like you in the world. But at a later stage in the movement, it actually becomes pretty significant advantage because, you know, I'll see churches or organizations, take an organization like InterVarsity, for instance. So it conducts this purge of all affirming staff or LGBTQ staff who are also affirming. And their leadership talked about it like, well, now we've resolved this issue. We, we, took, we took a stand, we drew a line in the sand, we kicked out everybody who disagreed. And now people know, you know, if they, if they don't agree, we're not the space for them. And I'm just thinking, wait, you really think this is still going to be your policy in 50 years? Because I can guarantee you it won't be. <laughs> There's no way that's true. Because you can take any church or any organization that splits or tries to purge the affirming people and guess what? Give it enough time and more LGBTQ people just crop up in that smaller group of people. You know, the purified <laughs> group of people. There will st- We will still be there. And yes, that's going to be awful for people when they're coming out and they will experience rejection from a number of people. But in many cases, they will still produce change in some other people, right? Like maybe your dad doesn't accept you, but your mom does, or after five or 10 years, she does. And so you're never going to be able to maintain the type of quote unquote purity that I think a lot of people are seeking to do. And in ways that honestly are a lot easier in topics where you don't have dissenters just like sprouting up by birth in your community. <laughs> if the if the disagreement is around, you know, infant baptism versus um, baptism of believers, well, that's a disagreement that I think is much more likely to persist for the next hundred years and to still exist in a similar way a hundred years from now, because there just isn't the same, in, there isn't, you know, it's it's just a completely different conversation. And it's much easier to just be like, oh, okay, you believe in this, I believe in this, we'll go to these different churches. And you're not just going to have your, your children cropping up and it's life or death for, for them that you need to change your position on that. And this is a life or death issue. So that doesn't mean everybody responds the way they should, but it does mean many people eventually do change when people come out. And that's why I just still, yes, we are in a bad time right now. Um, and a really rough time. But looking at the long-term trend lines of this conversation, I don't see how the opponents of LGBTQ inclusion can maintain that position forever. Especially because think about like their children who they're raising today, who, or the babies they're having today, who will go to school. You know, maybe they can send them to schools where everybody feels the same way, but eventually they're going to know people who, whose parents are a same-sex couple, or, you know, they can't shield them from all media representation of LGBTQ people, um, from the fact that this is just increasingly becoming a fact of life. And I have a really hard time believing that babies being born today, even in very conservative Christian households who, with parents who feel very strongly opposed to same-sex relationships, I have a hard time believing that very many of those babies when they're 30, are going to care. Because most of the people who have the strongest feelings about this grew up in an incredibly homophobic environment and society where those views didn't have to be challenged or where their views are only being challenged at, at a distance. And so they, they can easily just say, oh, those are the other. Those are the, 
the, you know, the political other, the theological other. And so they don't really have to engage. Um, or they, they are challenged on a much more direct personal way by their own child and they reject their child or they do something horrible like that. But that's still, it was only, you know, the overall environment they're in was still an incredibly closed one to LGBTQ people. And that, I just feel like once you make those changes in a society, it's very hard if those changes have actually been able to stick, which I think ours in our society at large have had a lot more time to do than say the little opening that existed in early 1930s Germany. It's really hard to put that toothpaste back in the tube. And so that's why I still think, yes, this is a rough, rough time. There's a lot of self-care for people to do. Everybody gets, gets and needs to make their own choices about what type of work they want to do. Um, and this is not what everyone is called to do. It's probably, it's not even what most people are called to do, but I do think it's what some of us feel called to do. And I still am confident that it's not futile because of those basic underlying dynamics that despite everything have not changed in the last few years and will not change. There will still be kids coming out to their parents in very conservative states, churches, counties, and some of those parents just like my dad, when I came out to him, will for the first time in their life be willing to look at this topic differently. And they will need resources that help them do that. And then they will change, some of them. And yes, that change may then just precipitate them feeling iced out of the community they're part of. They may not be able to change that community in any kind of you know direct or near-term way. But those are changes that can still happen. There are still so many people in very vulnerable places who need those types of resources, who need that type of help. And there will never stop being those people. As long as homophobia and transphobia exist, there will never stop being people in need of that. And in so many cases, there still is potential for at least someone in their life to change their mind, to soften their views, to learn from that. And so, I mean, so that's why I do still have hope around the broader conversation. And more than that, it's also why I think that striving to, to have an intersectional approach to this conversation is so important because I think we have a unique in as LGBTQ people that most other marginalized groups don't have because of how we, you know, we just pop up like daisies. Um, and so that is an amazing opportunity if we're already asking people and already kind of having people in our lives go so far outside of their comfort zone to rethink one big topic around privilege, oppression, marginalization, then I do think those people are more ripe to be able to reconsider other topics. They've probably already paid a significant social cost um, for reconsidering the one. And so I think it's our responsibility then to make sure that this change that is more demographically inevitable than any other in terms of a social change standpoint, and not that demographics alone will do it. I certainly don't believe that. Um, but demographics alone certainly move it forward in uh, a pretty powerful way. So we have a responsibility since we have some of those advantages at our, on, on our side to make sure that we are including as many other people 
in that shift as possible. Yeah, I, I'm wondering because I feel like you're you're describing a lot of work that still needs to be done, but also like the goodness and the hope that you kind of have. I, I think what what keeps coming back to me as you're talking is is that sense of so then what can we do for people who are listening who are like in those conservative churches what can individual people do then to contribute to moving forward even in times where things feel like kind of yucky it's a good question and i don't think there's a single answer to it because it really does depend on people's context i've seen some conversation recently online about the um effectiveness or usefulness of trying to create change in a conservative Christian context. And some people who've been saying, basically, give it up, it's a waste of time. Um, But I think it really depends what type of conservative Christian context you're in. Because there are some where you may well exhaust yourself for years and never really have been heard, or nothing really ever changes. But we also know there are plenty of other churches where there is a lot more openness to start with. And so your hard work and exhausting yourself for years really does make more of a difference. So I, I get a little, um, what's the way to put it? I get a little frustrated sometimes when people in people who are in or who've come from such a conservative environment that no change efforts are really possible right now, then just kind of write off the whole thing for everyone else based on um, their experience rather than acknowledging that it's not like all change efforts are futile, but you it's not all possible. Like not every place is ripe for change right now. Um, so that's why certainly in our work, we focus a lot more on churches that we see as being, as having a lot more openness, as being more moderate, but that still need work on this um, because we're not going to change the most conservative churches right now especially when you have moderate churches that haven't even shifted yet, of course, you're not going to change the more conservative ones. Um, But we see churches shift their policies still on a fairly frequent basis or, and so why, why is that somehow not possible or not even worth trying to do for the sake of the LGBTQ people who are part of those communities or growing up there? I I just, I don't agree with that. Um, But I also don't want to give people like false hope and don't want to tell people, Oh, no matter where you are, just try to make a change. Because there are some contexts where that is less feasible, less realistic, and you might just end up, you know, beating your head against a wall for a long time and just feeling totally worn out and uh, beaten down at the end. And that's no good for anybody. So I think you just have to be thoughtful and conscious around what is the potential for change in this context, maybe the only potential for change. I think for most people, the potential is less institutional right now than maybe just with a few relationships. Maybe it's, and it's probably not the relationships with the people who are posting Breitbart memes, right? Um, It might be people who, you know, you're friends with who, yeah, it's just having conversations with people who actually have some openness to conversations, that's, I mean, sometimes it's the simplest thing you can do, but other times the best thing you can do is just to practice self-care. And maybe the best thing you can do, depending on where you're at, your experience and your context is to give yourself space or to walk away from something. So that's why I don't want to make a prescription. I don't believe that change is possible in every church on LGBTQ inclusion right now. Um, 
But I do believe the change is possible in many churches that are not currently affirming on LGBTQ inclusion now or in the near term future. And that eventually 10, 20 years from now, churches that would be impossible to reach right now become more possible to reach. And at that point, it would be more fruitful for people there to be, you know, making in efforts toward policy change or institutional change. Yeah. So, so you like mention like, I, I heard you say kind of the words like self-care in there. Um, and, and I'm thinking about for people who, who realize like they are in those spaces that are like, things may not change here for quite a while. I may not even be ready to jump into these spaces and host these conversations or like, there's a lot of cost in that. Um, self-care is one of those things that's such an ambiguous term. <laughs> So, so I'd be curious to hear like what, like when you're in those spaces of like, wait a second, like things may not change here. What do you do to care for yourself then? And and what would you maybe recommend or maybe not recommend, but like what, what gives you the ability to keep going when you're in those, those situations? Well, I'm not even going to pretend to be a self-care expert because I'm not. And I'm sure there are many people who you, you would talk to who could give you, um, better answers, but I could just, I could just tell you some of the things that I do. So the election happened. Um, it was rough. I'll just leave it at that. Um, for me, but I just, I mean, first of all, the women's March was great. And, uh, that was a form of self-care for me, even though I didn't realize it when I went there. Um, but, and, and sometimes like being able to show up in spaces where you see so many other people who are, who have the same values that you do and are not willing to accept um, a lot of the same things that you see too many people accepting. I mean, that can be really life-giving, but I also just decided that I would uh, limit my media intake. I used to follow politics more closely. It's not that I'm not paying attention. I absolutely read the news and I think it's important to stay informed, but I don't need to know every horrible thing that he said um, because I feel like that's part of, I don't know, if if I let him take up, you know, hours of my headspace every day, those are all going to be miserable hours. And generally speaking, there's not a lot I can do about it. If there is something I can do about a specific topic or issue or threat um, around contacting my uh, representatives, donating to better candidates who are running, volunteering for them. Um, I'm going to a fundraiser tonight for Beto O'Rourke. And I'm excited about that because that's, it will also be a form of self-care after the um, incredibly upsetting um, Supreme Court hearing. Um, so, you know, certainly there are ways, so I'm, I'm not trying to say that I'm, uh, not, um, paying attention. I am paying attention, but I've also tried to really actively limit just how closely I'm following things where I really can't have any impact. And I've tried to give myself blocks of time to read. I love to read. Some people may have other things they love to do instead. Um, and read things that have nothing to do with, um, you know, the, the, the headlines of the day, like to, to read books, to read, um, history, to read theology, um, to, I really hope to be reading more philosophy books because it's been too long and I really enjoy that to be, I, I, this year, um, I've actually been 
studying art for the first time. And it has been so awesome (laughs) and so exciting. I've always wanted to understand art better. And I always felt like I would go to museums and it would mostly go over my head. And I I spent some time in Spain this summer that was incredible and also a form of self-care and that in that I recognize most people absolutely do not have um, the same privileges that I have in even being able to to do something like that. Um, but for me, it was incredibly um, nourishing and just good to be out of um, just the everyday um, situation here. Um, and just got to spend some time with a lot of art and be learning about art and art history, which, you know, has plenty of problems <laughs> in its own right. Um But, you know, getting to spend time with paintings and just stare at a painting for half an hour and try to notice all the details I can find in it or to just go to a museum one afternoon and just be kind of apart from everything else. Um, And again, a lot of these things that require privileges or, you know, seeing a therapist or counselor, a lot of these do require whether it's the privileges of having time or having the money to be able to pay to see a counselor um, or, or an admission fee to a museum or something. But I have found it useful to have time where I'm not, where I'm able to give myself space to reflect on beauty and like beautiful things in the world and things that people have created. Um, But also like not just separating from the world. That's one, I mean, being, having alone time and just, can be an important form of self-care, but another important form of self-care for me is actually getting more involved um, in other things and like getting more involved in um, whether it's protests or um, campaigns or, um, you know, other, other things where I actually get to kind of feed off of the energy of like-minded people um, or just to make new friends who care about similar topics. It's kind of those two things. And then the third thing is just, having a calling and being able to just kind of keep my nose to the grindstone and knowing that there is still work to be done. There is still impacts, you know, an impact that we are making and just trying to do that and and focus on it and and, and do the most that I can and the best that I can with, you know, what I have. (sighs) Matthew, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. Well, thank you, Matthias. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Yeah. How can people find your work? Well, I mostly just use Twitter these days, to be honest, because since Facebook changed its algorithms for public pages, no one saw my Facebook posts anymore, so I don't make as many anymore. That's real. (laughs) If they change their (laughs) algorithms again, I'll post more over there. Um, But... Um, so yeah, you could follow me on Twitter, but the main thing to follow actually is not me. It would just be to follow the Reformation Project because, um, we, uh, you'll, you'll find more there anyway, in terms of more updates and, and more resources and things like that. You can also follow the Reformation Project by coming to Orlando, October 18th to the yes. 20th. <laughs> it's probably too late for most out-of-staters to try to arrange a trip. But if you're in the, certainly if you're in the Southeast part of the country, um, you can still register up until the conference itself. We're very excited. We're going to have uh, Tammy Hicks and her son Miles from Queer Eye there. Yes. going to be sharing their story about um, family acceptance and unconditional love. So 
just even going to something like that for me will be a form of self-care. I'm really excited for that, just to be able to find those examples of goodness and encouragement to nourish you and um, kind of replenish you um, and give you some hope for how change still is possible um, despite it all. Uh, So yeah, you can also sign up. You can go to our website. You should sign up for our mailing list um, at reformationproject.org. That's where you'll find a lot of updates as well. Um, So those would be, those would be the main places. Yeah. I know I plug the conference in like every episode, but like seriously, as a form of self-care, like just getting together with like-minded people is so good. It's so, so good. So thank you, Matthew. Thank you. Well, thank you, Matthias. Thank you for all of the fantastic work that you do. Thanks. I am a big fan, mm-hmm. a big fan of queerology, and uh, just very grateful for you and how much you make this whole movement better. Mm-hmm. Thank you. You can find Matthew on Twitter at Vines Matthew. Uh, his website is matthewvines.com. And if you haven't read his book, God and the Gay Christian, yet, be sure to go grab a copy wherever you buy your books. Uh, also, be sure to check out his nonprofit, Reformation Project. Uh, they're on Twitter at ReformationP or at ReformationProject.org. Queerology is on Twitter and Instagram at QueerologyPod, or you can follow me directly at Matthias Roberts. Queerology is produced with support from Todd and Teresa Silver, Christian Hayes, and over 90 other Patreon supporters. To find out how you can help support Queerology, head over to MatthiasRoberts.com support, and it'll take you right there. A really easy way to help support Corology is by leaving a rating and a review. Do that right in your podcast app or head to MatthiasRubbers.com slash review. As always, I'd love to hear from you. Reach out. I'll get back to you. Until next week, y'all. Bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.